This episode of The Dig is brought to you by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by NACLA. Couldn't get enough of Jacobin's special issue on Latin America? Go to NACLA.org, N-A-C-L-A dot org. NACLA is the oldest and most widely read progressive magazine covering the Americas. Praised by Noam Chomsky and Salvador Allende, vilified by Ronald Reagan, and placed under FBI surveillance during the Cold War. With resurgent right-wing governments on the rise across the hemisphere, there's never been a more critical time to keep up to date with Latin American politics and social movements. Subscribe to NACLA today and follow them on Facebook and Twitter. NACLA, it really is, and this is a very personal endorsement here, the unrivaled best source for smart left-wing analysis on Latin America. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What has become of Latin America's pink tide? It was an unprecedented rise in leftist governments that came to power via the ballot box, beginning with Hugo Chavez's election in 1998. By 2009, left administrations governed two-thirds of Latin America's population. But today, the Chavista government in Venezuela is in profound crisis, and the right has taken over via the ballot box in Argentina and by legislative coup in Brazil. On this episode, we'll discuss the pink tide in general, and Ecuador in particular. Ecuador is a small South American nation with its capital, Quito, high in the Andes, and a spectacular landscape that stretches eastward into the Amazon rainforest, west to the Pacific coast, and beyond to the Galapagos Islands. In Ecuador, Lenin Moreno, the candidate of the left party Alianza País, and former President Rafael Correa's vice president, narrowly won election this year. And so in Ecuador, the left in power has held on. But a determined opposition, low oil prices, and Correa's protracted conflict with environmental and indigenous movements have all raised serious questions about what a left government in Ecuador or anywhere in Latin America, can and should accomplish. Over the next few weeks, we're doing a sort of socialist great courses on Latin America. I've spent a few weeks cramming to pre-record these so I can slip into a series of undisclosed locations in Baja, California, to finish my book on immigration politics. There is no other place that in recent years has proven so fertile for both left-wing grassroots movements and actual governance than Latin America, But those politics are now in crisis, and so are something that leftists everywhere should be taking a very close look at. Plus, we're neighbors here in the Western Hemisphere, in the Americas. My guest today is Thea Riofrancos, a professor of political science at Providence College, who researches Ecuadorian politics, specifically as they relate to natural resource extraction. She has published in Cultural Studies, Perspectives on Politics, N Plus One Magazine, and Dissent and is currently working on a book manuscript entitled Resource Radicals, From Petronationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. Full disclosure, Thea and I have been partners for nearly 13 years, like romantically, not in the business sense, and we lived together in Ecuador about a decade ago. I'm a biased source, but I think you'll find that she's pretty damn smart. Thierry Francos, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. 
Before we get to Ecuador, let's talk about the pink tide and what's happened to it. How and when did this new generation of left governments in Latin America emerge? And why do they find themselves in such a serious crisis today? Uh, So the pink tide uh, generally refers to the electoral ascendance, the national electoral ascendance of left of center um, and more radically left governments starting in the late 90s, um, 1999 with the rise to power of Hugo Chavez um, and then continuing through recently. And we're still, you know, the question of whether we're still in the pink tide or not is is under debate at the moment. But at its height, which I think was maybe in 2010, two thirds of Latin America's population lived under a left of center government. So it was a complete sea change politically from the prior decades of neoliberal governments and then which had been which followed um, dictatorships in the 70s and 80s. So a really big shift to have democratically left elected left left wing governments. And that's kind of what the pink tide refers to. In terms of of the reasons why the left came to power in one country after another, and just to sort of rattle some of them off, we have Venezuela, Ecuador, Bolivia, Uruguay, Brazil, Chile um, are, are some that come to mind, and I'm, I'm missing some, but, but lots of, of, of major countries really being governed by the left um, for the first time in some cases ever. And so the reason that this happens is you have a kind of conjuncture and a combination of a few different factors. One is persistent poverty and inequality in the region. That wasn't caused by neoliberalism. We could trace the the causes of those all the way back to the colonial era, the independence era. But neoliberal policies in the late 80s and through the early 2000s, depending on the case, really exacerbated existing marginalization um, and uh, economic inequality. So that's that's one major factor. And the reason that's a factor is because it, at a basic level, creates a constituency of people who would benefit from redistribution and are politically potentially attracted to redistributive um, social spending uh, policies and also towards um, uh, their own political inclusion, which had been denied for, for against kind of since conquest in a sense, but also more proximately. So one is persistent inequality, marginalization, and in, and poverty. A second set of reasons is more on the political level, which is the consolidation of democratic governance. So as I kind of mentioned briefly, in most of these countries, except for Venezuela, you did have dictatorships in the 1970s and 80s, um, and then you had transitions to democratic regimes depending on the country again, in the mid-80s, in the late 70s through the mid-80s. So what that means is that for the first time, left parties um, and left movements can openly participate politically and uh, present their program um, to voters without the immediate fear of getting shot or tortured or whatever would have, of course, occurred under a dictatorship. That's not to say that there's no political repression or meddling of the U.S., even in the current um, moment, but but certainly there was more political openness. Um, so you have the constituency, you have the opportunity. Um, another thing to, to keep in mind is that kind of coinciding with with the beginnings of the left, of the turn to the left, was was a really low growth period in Latin America. So I think you could even, in some cases, get kind of middle classes on board. So you have the makings of uh, a mostly poor, but in some senses multi-class and in some cases multi-ethnic coalition um, um, for left-wing politics. Um, I could get a little bit more into um, some of the domestic causes, but without getting into too much detail, I want to add one more one more thing, which is that 
that in many cases you have histories of of social mobilization, of protest politics, um, of new political identities being forged around class, around indigeneity. Some of those are drawing on uh, longer histories of revolutionary movements in some cases or guerrilla movements, but there, but there's really a, a flourishing of social protest and movements in the neoliberal um, in the neoliberal period. Again, to contest those those conditions of inequality, of poverty, of social exclusion, of systemic racism against indigenous people, and that that's kind of interesting because it was contrary to what many academics expected at the beginning of the neoliberal period. A lot of academics thought neoliberalism would just sort of depoliticize movements because it had such a technocratic sort of managerial form of politics and people would feel just completely excluded from politics. And that actually didn't happen. We have a tremendous rise in protest and social movements and social mobilization. And a lot of the time with new social actors, and we'll talk more about about indigenous movements later, but that's one of the key sort of new social actors um, articulating a resistance politics in that in that time period. So, so those are the regional factors that to understand why any given case turned left, we'd have to understand the party system, the specific dynamics of protest, um, who the elites that they were combating were, um, all sorts of kind of domestic, the domestic conjuncture. Obviously, we're talking about a large number of, in many ways, very different countries. But what was the, what were the Pink Tides governments, what were the Pink Tide governments track records and why are they in crisis today? Well, that is a big question that, again, also depends on the domestic conjuncture in each case, and especially on the domestic political economy in each case. But I'll start with the first part, which is what is their track record? Um, I think it's important to emphasize the positive just because we are in a moment of crisis and debate around the left in Latin America. Uh, There was tremendous reductions in poverty, inequality, vast improvements in in developmental indicators, whether it's nutrition, sanitation, housing, clean water. And those are undeniable. They even sometimes get accolades from unlikely um, places like the World Bank or or things like that because the improvement is really, really striking. We'll talk a little bit more probably about the commodity boom later and what enabled that improvement. But for now, I'll just say in terms of developmental and economic outcomes, things were quite good for a while and in some cases continue to be good. So not only the poverty reductions that I just mentioned, which are historic and incredibly important given the neoliberal legacy of of entrenching poverty and inequality, but also in, in general, growth was good. The governments had a lot to work with fiscally, which we'll talk about a little bit later again with the commodity boom. But overall, the macroeconomic picture in many of these countries has been good. I think Bolivia probably stands out and maybe second Ecuador stand out a lot for for really quite good economic performance, no matter what your metric of economic performance is. So that's one important thing to mention. The other important thing to mention more on the political than the economic front is um, there's research that suggests that previously excluded populations, so I'm talking about poor people, um, working class people, indigenous people, women, um, really have um, been engaging politically much more. And that's really important because the political exclusion and the economic inequality, as we know, even in our own U.S. context, reproduce one another, right? So you can't just redistribute. You also have to create the conditions under which um, people are going, the masses are going to participate in politics. And that to an extent, I could be more critical on that front, but just to stay on the positive um, um, side of the ledger for now, to an extent has really has really improved. Um, so those are some 
good aspects of the track record. I think also kind of regionally and internationally and geopolitically, there's been some needed assertion of national and regional sovereignty. I'm at, and at least, you know, there are there are new hegemons in the region, whether we're talking about Brazil or China, but, but um, there has been at least a little bit more room to maneuver in terms of U.S. imperial um, interventions, not that they don't exist. And international financial institutions. Yes, and international financial institutions. Great, great point. Much less dependency there. Not none, but much less dependency there. Of course, the dependency has shifted towards Chinese and and then other regional development banks. So that has its own um, um, downsides. But um, so I, I think in terms of economic outcomes, in terms of political engagement and uh, opportunities for political participation of the masses of previously excluded people in terms of geopolitical kind of sovereignty, we have a lot of positive developments. The reasons why I think that that there's in some cases, again, case by case basis, there's been a decline in the less electoral fortunes or their approval ratings or various types of political scandals. Um to some extent, needs to be answered on a case-by-case basis. But one very important factor there is the commodity boom and bust. Um, so we could transition there or, or come back to it. But I think it's you can't really understand why the left has seemingly maybe declined or is in some kind of moment of transition without understanding that, um, that economic panorama. And by commodity boom, just to define it, you mean rising prices for things like oil? Yeah, so I mean um, what's what some economists call a commodity super cycle, which means when a variety of commodities and a commodity just just to to note is any kind of raw raw material that's sold on a kind of standardized market, right? So not just oil, but also soy, also metallic minerals, um, also corn, anything that's sold in kind of bulk um, goods and has and has international um, prices. When those kind of move together, we have a commodity super cycle when all prices for all those types of commodities are increasing. And that was happening between, it's disputed a little bit, but roughly between 2000, then peaking in 2011 and kind of plateauing till 2014, then when we have a kind of commodity bust and a lot of those commodities, especially oil, um, begins to to enter into a precipitous uh, downturn. So turning to Ecuador, in April, Lenin Moreno a politician from Rafael Correa's leftist Alianza País party won the presidency. It was closer than previous than Correa's wins had had been, um, but I think still counts as a significant victory given the headwinds that the left is facing throughout the region. Who is Moreno? Who was his competitor, and why was the race so close? Right. I want to um, emphasize it a little bit more than, than you just did, which this this was really the first competitive election since Correa first won um, the presidency in 2006. And I don't mean competitive in the sense of democratic. All of the elections that have occurred, to my knowledge, based on all international observers in, in, Ecuador, in, in Correa's Ecuador have been democratic, but they haven't been very competitive in the sense that there was really no viable opposition mounted, um, especially at the national level. So, so that's a sea change. But you are completely correct that Moreno did win. I don't think, you know, despite the, the, the um, claims of the opposition, there, I don't 
don't think there was any major fraud involved. So he did win. And that's important because of the regional panorama that we were just discussing, in which in some cases the the left has seen declining electoral fortunes. So this is seen indicative um, um, and perhaps vindicating that the left turn has some more permanence um, um, than we might have thought um, um, before Moreno's victory. Um, so who was the opposition? It couldn't have been more stark in some senses. Um, he, he just barely didn't win in the first round of the election against Guillermo Lasso, who's um, a banker um, um, and uh, had a kind of neoliberal policy platform. Sometimes it was kind of centrist in its image, but but when it got down to actual policies that he was proposing was quite neoliberal. So I think from the perspective of, of many Ecuadorians would have been a return to, to neoliberal policies, right? So that was his main competitor. Um, a successful businessman, you know, someone that played that up a lot as their image. Uh, he's Which is familiar a, to us in the U.S. Right, 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 exactly. So he was president of, um, I think it's the second or third largest bank of Ecuador, Banco de Guayaquil, um, for 18 years. Um, and so he has a long career in sort of the finance and banking world. And also was previously had a short stint as, quote unquote, super minister of the economy um, in 1999 during actually Ecuador's worst financial crisis, which is something that that worked against him, certainly. So the competition was a neoliberal banker um, and with a very smooth image and very played up a lot sort of good governance and anti-corruption themes, exactly the type of stuff that the right in, in, in Latin America more broadly has tried to use against the left. Um, um, sometimes it pivots away from real policy discussions and it's just this kind of, as I said, good governance kind of thing, but, but it's, it's, it's specifically directed against um, concerns that the left is scandal ridden right now. So that, that, that was his, um, um, that, that was his kind of campaign strategy, Guillermo Lasso's campaign strategy. So a neoliberal banker versus a guy named Lenin. Yeah. Um, but what, what are Lenin's, poli- Lenin's politics? Well, that's also in a, in a similar way to how I was saying that Lasso kind of covered up his neoliberal policies with these, this kind of good governance campaign. Um, Moreno's policies and political stance was often difficult to discern. It got more to the left after the runoff. So I mentioned that he didn't win enough votes during the runoff to just win in, in the first election. So they went to a second um, to a second round. Um, and, and as, as the final general election approach, Moreno did emphasize his, his left wing credentials more, but throughout the campaign, a lot of what he did actually campaign on was that he would preserve what people liked about Korea. So preserve some of the good economic outcomes, the social spending, that the, the huge infrastructure projects, which I haven't mentioned, which have been a hallmark of Korea's time in power, um, that he would maintain what's good, but also improve upon what at least according to the media, people were not happy about, right? So like Korea's brash leadership style or the, you know, the centralization of power to some extent, which which did occur under Korea. And so, so things like that, he was going to have a more conciliatory image, um, more kind of democratic leadership or more inclusive of certain social groups, both elite and non-elite social groups that had felt sort of excluded by the Korea administration. So he was going to be Korea with a friendly face or the good things plus um, plus a friendlier kind of 
image. Um, there are some in, in Ecuador that I've spoken to, political analysts on the left, that that view this as more than just a change in image, that see Moreno as potentially abandoning aspects of Correa's political project, um, Correa's um, um, com- commitments on some level to using the state to intervene in the economy and in society to, to transform power relations. Now, I think that Correa fell short on that in many ways, but I do believe that was his goal, right? And what's less clear about Moreno, because he doesn't really have a very clearly left-wing like political formation exactly, it's a little less clear what his ideological commitments are. Other than that, he wants to preserve what's popular and um, open up more both to business and to the indigenous movement. And we can talk about why the indigenous movement, um, Korea relations had frayed and so why Moreno is, is reaching back out to them. But, but though he's kind of, he's playing a, a sort of centrist um, strategy and both towards economic elites and towards social movements. Hey, this is Larry Website, the Dick's new Postmaster General. Our show, which tells the stories from the front lines of American class warfare and international politics, are made possible by the listeners who support us on Patreon.com. If you haven't yet, please go to Patreon.com, search for the Dig, and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month goes a really long way. Only through donations to our Patreon and class struggle can the best enough emerge. Back to the show. What w- was... Korea's program, why what, did it have such overwhelming support for so long? And why did that support start to crumble a little bit at the end to the point where Moreno really only just barely uh, won election? Korea's political support and the support for his party, Alianza País, cannot be sort of overstated it especially in a country like ecuador which similar to some of its andean neighbors has had a really incohate party system um we never ecuador has never had a president be reelected since it democratized in 1979 like it just sort of um a lot of a lot of parties competing um without clear programs um and a lot of unpopular presidents one after the other a few of which have actually been forced to resign by so by massive social movements in the 1990s and early 2000s so um, the track record for for presidents in Ecuador is not that great. Compared to that, Correa is really, really, really stands out. He's won re-election multiple times. Um, his party, Alianza País, has at certain point has been had a majority in the legislature the entire time he was in power, and at certain points had a super majority. Um, he um, got a new constitution approved by got a new constitu- constitution approved by by resounding popular. Um, um, referendum, um, all other referendums that he had put forth, all all won. And in addition to all of that, he had really high approval ratings. Um, um, the entire time um, um, that he was in office, I think on average over fifty percent approval ratings, which again may not sound like incredible, um, and, but they did actually reach the sixties at certain points. Um, may not sound incredible, but in, in Ecuador's context, is very unusual. Um, Ecuadorians don't like their politicians generally for good reason, and they did like Correa. So was a big a big change um so that's what what he achieved in terms of um um on the political front and the on the party front um and why did why was he able to achieve that success what what was his program and why was it popular right so his his program is 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 interesting i would i would say that the most important change um in korea's government compared to prior governments is a focus on 
unserved, unmet social need. Um, the fact that for decades, um, poverty and inequality and malnutrition and all of those things were just increasing unabated, really. Um, Korea, for the first time, said this national administration is going to focus on making sure that people have health care, making sure people have housing, making sure people have enough income to spend. And he did that in a concerted way. Um, the second pillar of his program was public infrastructure, which plays into all of those um, um, unmet social needs, right? Because some of the infrastructure might be for sanitation or for roads or for things that also improve health outcomes, that also improve housing outcomes and things like that. But a second major pillar was that this public or sometimes public-private investment in massive infrastructure projects so that, you know, it takes much less time now in Ecuador uh, on bus, um, which is how most people travel between provinces to get from one province to another. It takes much less time for a campesino or peasant, you know, to bring their products to market. All of those things are are very um, impactful, very, very concrete uh, standard of living improvements. Um, and so he made those promises from the beginning of his campaign, and he followed through on them. And so I would I would say that's that those are those are two main pillars of of his program. What's less a pillar of his program is is redistribution of wealth. And um, that's because he was able to rely uh, at least as long as the commodity boom lasted on resource rents. Right. So I think it's now time to talk a little bit more about about the commodity boom, which I defined briefly um, a moment ago as as all of these commodities moving in the same direction with their 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 prices increasing um, for over a decade. And for Ecuador, what that most um, that impacted Ecuador most of all because Ecuador depends on oil. It's a so-called petro state that exports and extracts and, and exports oil, and that's where a lot of government revenues come from. For decades, and this has been the case since the early 1970s, for most of that history, um, those those oil, um, the revenues for oil have really taken the form of corporate profits or paying off foreign debts. The population as a whole really did not see the benefits of oil extraction, and they really only saw the downsides, which are the huge socio-environmental harms that it causes, right? Um, so Korea, one of Korea's key commitments and, and, and the, the sort of underlying condition that allowed him to both increase social spending and um, infrastructure investment was that he was going to use those oil revenues for social needs, um, but also that he did so, he was doing so in a context in which the oil revenues were historically high. So he could follow through on that, on that promise. He didn't actually in some ways have to make some of the difficult trade-offs because the, the revenues were, um, were, so, were so high. And also, he, he his government did renegotiate contracts um, in terms of taxes and royalties to make sure that they got a bigger cut um, compared to foreign firms. Um, so Korea was, in that sense, able to govern from the left in a very substantive way. He had the fiscal room to maneuver and the policy and ideological commitments um, of where to channel of where to channel those increased revenues. Relying on resource rents made his program vulnerable to the commodity bust. It, it did a few things. So um, so I think, yes, one on one level, uh, one problem with relying on, on commodities as your sort of development model is that you're very vulnerable to volatility. That, in some senses, wasn't a huge problem for most of Korea's tenure in power because the prices remained high. They were, it was an unusually long super cycle of commodities. So, so he didn't have the ups and downs, you know, every few years. He had a pretty steady um, um, influx of revenues, but then towards the end of, of, uh, of his recent last term, um, there was a, a huge 
drop in oil prices, and that did begin to affect him. So one issue with with um, with relying on commodities as your model of development, a commodity export, is is the volatility in prices. But and that would be the case for a government of any ideological stripe, right? But I think that the problem from a left perspective is not only volatility, but the fact that resource rents allow a government to meet social demands without redistributing wealth, right? So if you have this this influx of revenues from um, from oil exports, you can pay for all sorts of social programs, um, which social movements have been demanding for a very long time, without expropriating the wealth of the rich. And that is a kind of win-win situation that in some ways has some benefits, right? So a benefit of that, and again, speaking from the left, is that you didn't have the type of immediate sort of violent elite backlash, right, where, where like, Korea wouldn't have even lasted a term in office because he was expropriating wealth and, like, the, the capitalist class organized in order to get him out of power. Like, the win-win was good for just having a modicum of social stability in order to move forward with these, with these very important um, social spending and investment programs. But I think in the medium and longer term, it was, it was a double-edged sword for the left in the sense that you didn't have to confront entrenched elites in order to satisfy mass political demands. And you also didn't have to organize the masses in order to confront elites. So I think that at a, at a certain point, those entrenched elites remain in power and the masses are not necessarily mobilized and organized in a way to confront them. And therefore, the more radical and transformative potential of 21st century socialism um, and some of the more radical demands of social movements like the indigenous movements, like labor and peasants movements um, over decades, were really not um, going to be met. Because in order to do that, you have to start getting at the root of social inequality and domination. And not just were those radical demands not met, they were actively resisted and even repressed because the same sort of strategy of relying on the commodity boom to fund social spending and meet these social needs uh, meant that Correa was able to placate the right by not radically transforming class relations and and the control of wealth in society. Um, but that also meant that he that pursuing uh, resource extraction as the basis of his economic model, that also brought him into conflict with the traditionally most organized and militant sectors of the left in Ecuador, which is the indigenous movement, the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador, which in the 90s, I think, was arguably the most powerful social movement in the Americas. Yeah, some some scholars have said that, I mean, certainly scholars have said it was the most powerful indigenous movement in the hemisphere because it was the only one of any country in the Western Hemisphere that was truly nationally organized um, and also forced uh, two presidents to resign, uh, f- f- um, pressured for constitu- for multiple rewritings of the Constitution, for legislation, um, had some degree of autonomy over educational policy and development policy in indigenous communities. Um, so a very powerful social movement um, that to some extent, um, had had been in a period of decline when Correa was elected, which I think is is not unrelated to his 
to, to his electoral success in the sense that, um, so just backtracking a little bit for, for listeners not uh, aware of Ecuadorian history, um, the, the uh, indigenous movement emerged on the national stage in 1990 and throughout the 1990s and early 2000s was not only, again, the most powerful indigenous movement, but was a key articulator of popular sector demands. And by popular sector, it's kind of a jargony term that, that's used in Latin America. It refers to anyone who's excluded and exploited. So the working class, peasants, um, 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 indigenous peoples, um, Afro-descendant peoples. Um, so the Konai was, was, again, not just like a sort of narrowly, quote unquote, ethnic movement. It was um, the key articulator of a whole range of popular sector demands and was at the forefront of a range of popular sector coalitions that really um, militantly resisted neoliberal policy to the point where actually neoliberal policy was very unevenly implemented in Ecuador. And, and there are multiple reasons for that, but one of them was the was the very organized um, level of, of, of social resistance um, and mobilization. That was one reason that neoliberalism actually was less radical in Ecuador compared to some other countries on the continent. So they were a successful social movement and they they have a federated structure. So they they they're they're um, um, their organizing model builds from a base level indigenous community um, to regional federation to provincial um, groups to regional federations all the way up to the national level. So it's a very um, agile at its at its apex of power, a very agile political formation um, for a variety of reasons. It it entered into political decline. One was supporting um, a totally unsuccessful coup in 2000. Um, um, the other has been a kind of um, um, gap between leadership and base in recent years. Some has been a more ethnic turn and a slight maybe abandonment of some of those popular sector coalitions, though I don't think that's all the, the indigenous federations fault because some of those other popular sector groups have also declined in power. So it's a mix of reasons, but they don't serve that same role as the articulator of mass popular grievances as they used to. The reason I say this is related to, to Korea's victory is that the Konai and their pop, other popular sector allies really opened up the political space on the left and made it clear that there was a mass constituency for left-wing politics. Meanwhile, though, their political capacity declined at least, and that opened the opportunity for someone like Korea, um, which who didn't have a lot of organic connections to social movements, and certainly his party is just mainly an electoral vehicle and doesn't come out of of, um, of social movements um, to sort of enter the political stage and 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 um, and win um, time after time. Um, but the upshot of that has been, in terms of state social movement relations, quite a bit of conflict between. Um, the government um, between Korea and Alianza País on the one hand and the indigenous movement and their environmentalist allies on the other hand. Um, and a lot of that conflict has been um, um, a really key one, probably the most important one, is uh, the commodity-dependent um, development project that model that, that we've talked about already, um, which impacts first and foremost the communities most affected um, and immediately in the sites of extractive projects. So and a lot of those those communities are indigenous, not exclusively, um, but a lot of them are. So that that is one thing that has fomented conflict between the Korea government and and indigenous women and their environmental allies. 
Another is kind of also what I was starting to say, which is that Korea has been able to govern without really including the indigenous movement because they were at a moment of relative weakness. He has he didn't feel the need to really include them in his coalition. And instead of including them, he actually did the exact opposite, which was polarize conflict. And he did that by first and foremost by criminalizing protests. So around 200 indigenous and environmental activists that were taking place in, by all accounts, peaceful protest against oil and mining projects um, have faced criminal charges. Um, and there's been even more extreme and violent forms of, of state repression recently. Um, in um, in Korea's, during Korea's last several months in power, there was a state of emergency in an Amazonian province because a indigenous community had reoccupied a mining camp that had displaced them from their territory and police and military were used to to kick them out and evict them from the mining camp. Um, and that involved quite a bit of, of, of violence. Um, so that sort of governing by Korea being aware that he didn't necessarily need the indigenous movement in order to maintain his broad left coalition because they were at a moment of relative weakness and his pushing and forceful promotion of the extraction-based development model, which fomented conflict at the local level with indigenous communities, was a combination for all-out conflict between indigenous movements and and Korea. And it's really it's really tragic in many ways because as as I was saying, the indigenous movement was um, key to Korea's rise to power. Um, the the fact of having a left leftist party in government for all these years is unimaginable without the resistance that that the indigenous federation and its allies um, mobilized over over a decade. But the political and economic conjuncture is such that Korea could, to some extent, govern without them, but also promoted a number of policies that that certainly violated their demands of indigenous sovereignty, um, of of the rights of nature, of environmental well-being, of the right to clean air and water, of all, all sorts of things that they had been struggling over um, for a long time. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but The Dig and Dan Denver are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the sh- show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, to support the show, go to patreon.com and look up The Dig. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. Was it inevitable that Korea and his agenda of, I guess we could call it, muscular social democracy or something, uh, that it would come into conflict with indigenous and environmental movements? Because early on in his administration, uh, when you have the Constituent Assembly writing the new constitution and you have the rights of nature established, you have this um, Quechua principle of sumak. Because I, I don't living remember. Living well, yeah, Suma Kazai. One million, I, yeah. Um, uh, enshrined in the Constitution, you have prior consultation, but not prior consent required before um, extraction projects take place. There was a, and, and you have the, the head of the Constituent Assembly is at that point a Korea ally and founder of Alianza Pais, a man named Alberto Acosta, um, who ends up being one of his leading critics, but Korea also has um, one of the country's uh, leading Amazonian ind- indigenous activists in his cabinet um, and in the Constituent Assembly. So is it inevitable that it plays out this way? 
nothing is inevitable in politics, right? So I think that strategic um, um, decisions on on the part of both sides, both both the indigenous movement and radical environmental groups um, matter, and strategic decisions made by the Korea government matter. I think that there could have been a much more concerted effort to have the indigenous federation be part of Korea's coalition, which I actually think that even if he didn't absolutely need them to succeed electorally, would have been beneficial for a number of reasons. It certainly would have decreased, like, now violent, at at times, violent conflict between the state and social movements, but it also might have led to a more transformative, um, more sort of um, eco-socialist model of development. Um, And I think that, that there's, that there were perhaps errors on both on both sides, and uh, I hesitate a little bit sometimes as an outsider to say what what people in in Ecuador, sh- you know, what what political figures in Ecuador should or shouldn't have done. But I think that there, you're right in a sense that there was a possibility for a model that both spoke to and really fundamentally address indigenous demands, having a truly plurinational policy, um, ending systemic and institutional racism, um, equalizing um, life chances between indigenous and non-indigenous um, um, people in Ecuador, something that really substantively addressed um, demands for territory. And, and this is something I'll mention briefly, that one of the things that the Korea government has been really bad at is land redistribution, right? So this is one of the major reasons that, that Ecuador remains a very unequal society and economy is that Korea has not has not confronted landed elites, right? And that's something that the indigenous movement in the highlands and in the Amazon has pushed for since its inception, right, in the 70s. So so I think that all of those could have been part of 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 a of a slightly less commodity dependent, broader left vision that which the aim of which would have been something like ecological and communitarian socialism. And I'm using those words because those were the words from the 1994 um, Konai political program. The Konai, excuse me, is the National Indigenous Federation. They were pushing for something that they called socialism, but that also addressed indigenous demands, addressed territorial demands, addressed environmental crisis, but did so within a framework of redistribution of of land and wealth um, and and of popular sector demands. And I think because of some decisions made by both the Korea administration to really run the model on oil and not confront domestic elites, and also to some extent on the indigenous and environmental side to prioritize a very militant anti-extractive politics, which, you know, for all its environmental virtue and um, and all the ways that it does speak to the the demands for territorial sovereignty on the part of indigenous communities may not speak very much to the masses in the cities, you know, who get their weekly, or it's not weekly, their monthly welfare payment um, from oil revenues, right? Or get their house or healthcare or education from oil revenues. And you have to have something to say to those poor and working class masses that may not be immediately affected by extractive projects. So I think that to some extent maybe is a strategic error on the side of of the Indigenous Federation, which previously was very connected, excuse me, committed to a socialist politics and to a mass base building sort of organizing model, and for various reasons kind of strayed more towards a militant environmentalism. Um, And so on one side, you have militant environmentalism. On the other side, you have commodity-dependent socialism. And when the conflict is set up that way, yes, they are definitely going to inevitably going to conflict. Right. But but I don't think that was an inevitable outcome. And I think there were a couple of years at the beginning of Korea's administration that pointed in, as you were sort of mentioning, in, in a different in a different political and economic direction. Do you have a sense of why Korea chose to confront the 
indigenous movement and environmental left instead of confronting elites? Because you had to confront both choices involved, either choice involved confronting someone. Yeah, I think it's a great question um, um, that I don't fully have an answer to, but I want to note that that Korea's um, political party and um, his campaign slogan of his political party and his sort of slogan while in office has been citizens revolution. And that's meaningful because Korea... um, um, really is not too enamored with the idea of having autonomous social movements that are in complex relationships with the state. What his goal was, was to create a sort of homogenous body of citizens that um, all had their social needs met and did not necessarily join these groups such as such as the National Indigenous Federation or even unions. He had a lot of kind of not very good labor policies. Um, he was, you know, you could chalk it up to personality that he was jealous of the of the power and autonomy of other groups, or you could say that it was his ideology, which in some senses was this kind of social democratic liberalism almost. Like he didn't he didn't really um, um, incorporate either rhetorically or in terms of his political coalition longstanding social movements. He had this idea of of citizens and the government, right? And so and so some of his his attacks on the Konai actually come from his ideological orientation, which is um um, which in uh, kind of jargony terms you might call anti-corporatist. Like he didn't really want other bodies of social groups kind of mediating between the state and the, the citizens U- at large. In U.S. history, it sounds familiar with it's, it. It sounds a lot like progressive era kind of technocratic. Exactly. Governance. Oh, yes. Technocratic. Yeah. And I think that's a ma- you know, major Korea is sort of an unusual combination of a technocrat and a left populist. But he definitely has a technocratic orientation. And I think that he sees some of these movements as vestiges of the past or of entrenched interests. He focused a lot on indigenous leadership being a form of entrenched interest, which there's probably not zero to that to that critique of, of some of the leadership in, in the indigenous party and the indigenous movement. But um, but I don't think is a it's a very simplifying characterization of the indigenous movement as a whole. Why he wasn't as interested in going after some of the entrenched elites, you know, I, I can complexify that a little bit. He didn't do nothing on that front. He increased taxes, which is very important, made the tax system more progressive. He did begin to tax more financial transactions. So and Latin American rich people do not Latin like to American pay rich taxes. people hate paying taxes. Like any of the, any of them, much more so than than even with you know than even in the U.S. So so it, that those are important steps towards kind of mitigating the power of elites um, and towards shifting the rev- the uh, uh, fiscal sort of revenue base away from oil towards taxation. Um, but he did not confront two big groups. One is large landowners and two is um, is domestic business groups. Um, so these are the owners of pharmacies and supermarkets and um, and um, and cons- especially consumer markets, and those groups really benefited from Korea's tenure in power um, because. Um, people had more spending money, apart through welfare payments and part through general economic growth, all of this sort of oil oil fueled growth. Um, and where did they spend it? You know, not at a government run store. This wasn't socialism or at a commune or a cooperative necessarily, but at you know your privately owned supermarkets. So those groups really benefited, and it created a kind of symbiotic, in my view, a very negative symbiotic relationship between those big business groups that benefited from increased consumer spending and um, and Korea um, and the land. Donor front is 
it, the, why he didn't confront them, I, I have a few different reasons for, but I'll just focus on one for now, which is that Korea and his technocratic sort of approach really thought that that large agribusiness was more efficient. I think he wanted to regulate it more or make it more socially productive or useful. But he he said many times that he was not in favor of sort of breaking up big parcels of land so that every peasant could have their hectare. Um, he thought that was an old fashioned and inefficient way of, of, of having an agricultural sector. And he wanted a large scale agricultural sector. The problem is, of course, is that it benefits entrenched elites that are ultimately going to limit the transformative capacity of like the left. Bananeros. Right, like like the big banana plantations and palm oil plantations and and um, and the flower plantations and shrimp and shrimp farms and and all sorts of um, um, agricultural commodities. So even though this has been a period of historic weakness for the indigenous movement, Ecuador still has had one of the most powerful, popular kind of class based environmental working class and poor people based environmental movements in the hemisphere and maybe in the world. And they have had quite a bit of success in resisting Korea's efforts to open a commercial mining sector in the country. Can you tell me a little bit about their successful resistance to mining? Yes, I can. Um, so Ecuador, um, since the early 1970s, has been a petrostate. What Korea has tried to do with with uneven success, as you mentioned, is try to diversify the oil um, away from just the oil economy and also have a large-scale mining economy. That has been met with resistance. Um, and that resistance has, to some extent, been successful. The government had five strategic projects, mining projects planned, both gold and copper, at the beginning of its... Um, um, uh, the beginning of the Korea's first administration, and only one of those has a contract. Um, and there are a variety of reasons for that, including declining mineral prices. But one of them has one of those reasons has been successful local resistance, um, especially around the issues of both water and territory. And the fact that that does, especially at the early stages of investment, scare off mining companies. So I think that we actually have seen Korea's plan to um, um, to turn Ecuador into a mining country uh, really stalled um, um, both by some of the, the economic outlooks for mining, but also especially because of localized um, um, strong resistance. The last question would just be looking at Ecuador's recent history, what you see to be the lessons for people who are interested in unifying environmentalist and socialist movements and governing from that that position? It's a tall order, but I think that one key thing is to move the revenue base as much as possible away from oil and mining. And there have been some strides towards that under Korea, but that has to be the first priority. A second thing is kind of opposite to what the Korea administration was doing, which was to extract everything as quickly as possible. I think that, you know, if you want to have a mining sector, which environmentally I'm not in favor of, but just putting that aside for a moment, I don't think it makes sense to try to do it quickly. I think it makes sense to try to do it more slowly and build a national mining company and actually have strong, a stronger bargaining position um, and more domestic knowledge and expertise around mining um, instead of kind of rushing into it, which is what they did. Um, but yeah, I think that the key thing is to, as much as possible, um, change the revenue base. That's going to involve confrontation with domestic elites who are going to view that as a form of expropriation, which it is. That's going to involve um, actual um, um, mobilization and organization of the masses, both in uh, rural and urban areas. Um, 
in, in order um, in order to actually confront those elites. I think that if the goal is something like eco-socialism, the model needs to be rethought very deeply. But I also think, sort of maybe contra some of my friends in Ecuador, that uh, a militant anti-extractivism can't maybe be the, the first phase of that model because you do have to think about unmet social need. Um, and I think it's hard to immediately transition away from oil, but I think as much as possible, the steps should be taken for that transition to actually occur. Um, and unfortunately, the Correa administration moved in the opposite direction. Theorio Francos, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Theoria Francos is a professor of political science at Providence College. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. And on iTunes, leave us a glowing review. Those reviews really do help introduce us to new listeners. And so does spreading the word to your friends. Also, please find us on Patreon, and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Thank you.